0: Good afternoon. You are listening to Land Signals on WERU-FM. Land Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change here in the Dawnland. We explore topics such as restorative justice, restorative practices, decolonization, cultural revival, and more. Our guests, are people involved in aspects of truth, healing, and change work. This program is offered in an effort to share, inspire, and inform. Dawnland Signals is a collaboration of Wabanaki Reach and WERU-FM. I am your co-host, Maria Gerard. Good afternoon. I'm your co-host, Esther
1: Ann. And we're real excited uh, this month to be talking with Passamaquoddy author, Wendy Newell-Dyer, who's going to uh, share with us parts of her story and the other stories that go along with her story. But first, Maria is going to do a land appreciation for us.
0: Thanks, Esther. I just wanted to start by first taking a moment to acknowledge the land beneath our feet, Wabanaki, the land of the first light, the dawn land. Land that has known Wabanaki ancestors, the tallest trees, and the oldest rivers. Land that has known peace and conflict. Land that has nourished us and sustained us since time immemorial. We acknowledge the indigenous peoples of this land, Wabanaki, the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, and Abenaki. And we give thanks to your stewardship and resilience. Nadal Labemnalwuk, All My Relations. We are broadcasting from WERU Studio in Blue Hill, Alamusik, Wabanaki.
1: one Maria, that was very nice. So today um, we're so happy to have with us Wendy Newell-Dyer. She's a paso woman that lives down east, and she's um, a writer. And I just want to read a little bit of uh, her bio from this, this thing I found online. When, when you Google her, you can find this as well. Um, after her husband's prostate cancer diagnosis in 1996, Wendy went to college to study literature and professional writing. She graduated magna cum laude from the University of Maine Machias in 2003, then became a full-time caregiver to her husband who passed in 2007. Together they homeschooled their three sons through high school. She started her writing career as a freelance writer and photographer da- for Downeast Coastal Press and Machias Valley News Observer. Um, <clears throat> her story, A Warrior's Homecoming, was published in Donland Voices, an anthology of indigenous writers from New England in 2014. And she also wrote two stories for the online literary magazine Donland Voices 2.0. And she's also published in Homeschooling Today, and two of her stories have recently been published in two Chicken Soup for the Soul books. So welcome, Wendy. I I just asked her to be on the show and to share her story, knowing that there's not just one story that she's done so much and written about so many experiences in her life. I um, am really excited to see what she shares with us
2: today. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, thank you. I'm I'm so, uh, I'm so honored that you asked me to do this. Um, I, when you asked, I was no question. I, you know, I wanted to do it Um, just to share a little bit about my story. Um, I knew from my earliest recollection that I was adopted. Um, My adopted parents made a point of being honest with me right from the start. My first five years, uh, I grew up on a little island called Little Deer Isle, which is sort of the gateway to Deer Isle Stonington. And I lived in Egge which I've found uh, I believe is place of the fishware. Life was great for the first five years of my life. I was the center of attention because I was this little adopted dark skinned child and and everyone in my community just were so happy that um, I had joined uh, the family. Um, and then, uh, when I hit school, that's sort of when I started to realize that I was a little bit different, um, right from the start, you know, it was September. So I'd been out in the sun all summer and my skin was really dark. So when I went into kindergarten, that was like the first thing that, that people did was to call me names because of the color of my skin. Um, The school that I went to, um, there was only four um, biracial students there. Um, You know, back in the 60s, it was, uh, we were in a very diverse population there. Um, And so I, like my earliest recollection of school was being called Pocahontas. Um, Squaw was one that stayed with me until I went into high school. Um, And I can remember speaking to the teachers about it, you know, telling them these names and these things that were said to me and and the only response I got from them was that I was too sensitive and I needed to just get over it. (laughs) So that was sort of the gateway to my public education. Um, I was lucky that I was raised um, in a family. Um, My grandparents lived right next to my house. Um, if I had to pick grandparents that were, you know, as close to traditional Passamaquoddy people, it would have been them. Uh, my grandfather left school in third grade because his doctor felt that if he didn't, um, leave school, he was going to have a, you know, a complete nervous mental breakdown. So he spent his entire childhood just like hunting and fishing on the Island. Um, uh, my grandmother canned everything, you know, he canned mackerel, canned vegetables, fruits, cans and jellies, and, Uh, He shot deer and moose and rabbit. Um, And so I actually grew up on that diet, um, which, you know, it was pretty fortunate that that was the family I went into. Um, I did not always uh, appreciate the family that I was raised in because um, I think all adoptees sort of go through these various phases um, to come to accept
3: um that we were adopted. Um so you know with the names, uh at the time, you know, Westerns were
2: on TV. I was always watching Westerns. And when I look back on it now, I used to have the whole cowboy outfit.
3: Oh.
2: Um, and you used to go to school with that because back then you could bring your little guns and and I was always shooting the Indians, <laughs> um, and I didn't, I really, I had no knowledge whatsoever of the four tribes um, growing up in my, this, you know, the school that I went to, and the time that it was. Um, you, had, you know, Wendy, that reminds
1: me, I remember being a child, and we're, we're, you're a little bit older than me, I think. So we're about the same age. I remember being a child and watching a TV show and it was Cowboys and Indians. Right. And I'm the youngest to have a lot of all my brothers are way older than me. And uh, one of my older brothers came by and he's like, what are you doing? I said, and I was cheering for the Cowboys, of course. And he's like, what are you doing? And I said, they're, you know, these awful Indians, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, but you're Indian. And I was so offended I said no I'm not I was like I I couldn't believe that I was the same thing as what I was seeing on tv these people on horses and they were violent and you know I I I remember that so clearly because it just it blew my mind and then I started thinking well I just it was so confusing to to think that that's what I was when clearly I didn't look
3: like that (laughs) I remember um when uh, uh, in animal crackers, there were all the different animal
2: heads, but there was a native in a headdress. So like I had all these questions about where I came from. I knew I was, you know, my whole life, people asked me if I was part Indian. Um, and when I looked at those animal crackers, like the message it was sending me, you know, you're, you're an animal, if you're, if you're that, you're an animal. Um, and ironically when I met my dad eventually he said the same thing those you know he talked about the animal crackers as well Um, he remembered that Um, but so I went through school I was really you know called a lot of names in elementary school and then sort of as I got into junior high I really got into sports and by the time I got to high school I didn't have that mocking and, and name calling and because I was an athlete, I sort of found my, my niche. Um, but the whole time I was always wondering, you know, who am I, where do I come from? Who are my parents? Um, why am I the darkest one in my class? Um, and so I, I went to my 40th class reunion yesterday, actually on the island where I grew up. So I, uh, I left a little bit early so I could just sort of r- ride around the island and think about um, life there. Um, and I remember, like, in high school, I was so conflicted. Like, I I really wanted to know who my parents were. I wanted to know where I came from. I wanted to know if I was part Indian. Um, but I didn't have the courage at that time to take the steps. I didn't even know what the steps were. Um, so, like, the whole way through high school, I was just always, like, this battle inside my head. who, You know, who am I? Where do I belong? Because a lot of times I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. Um, one of the things since my earliest days um, I found my refuge in the woods Um, when I was grappling with um, you know my adoption um, my first adopted father left when I was eight he just went out the door one day and didn't come back and and so the ways that I processed trauma even back then was to just go into the woods and I would spend hours in the woods and my mother would get so aggravated with me because she couldn't understand you know, why do you have to go in the woods so much? But that's just where I was naturally drawn to. And you know, when I was in the woods as a child, in observing nature and all the creatures and everything seemed in balance um, when a lot of times in my life things seemed really out of balance. Um, and I still do that today. Uh, I took a hiatus through my 20s and 30s, but I found my way back um, in my 39th year. I found, oh, yeah, I remembered. You know, this is where I go to process trauma and process events in my life. Um, after I married, um, I had three children. And it was after the birth of my third son that I really, I really wanted to find out who my parents were. Um, and... Right at that time, I, I was watching Oprah Winfrey, and it was all about reunification stories of adoptees finding their birth families. And one of the people just laid out a, a basic plan of how someone could go about um, finding out that information. Um, and first of all, I had never really talked about my adoption with my mother. Um, as far as she was concerned, I was her child. Um, Leading up to my adoption in the early 60s, she had carried two babies full term, um, but they had died, each died within a day. So she did not want to go through that trauma again. Um, So that's why I was adopted. Um, So, you know, right from the start, she adored me. You know, I was that baby that sort of healed her from those losses that she had. so, you know, I never really talked much about uh, being adopted to her because she kind of didn't leave that conversation open for me. Um, so I had to, the first thing I had to do is ask her, you know, what adoption agency was I adopted through? Um, and that was a tough, that was a tough thing to ask for. I actually had to ask my stepdad who, who actually adopted me a second time when I was 12. I had to ask him to ask her because I knew, it, I knew it was going to be painful for her. I knew that she was going to have a lot of doubts and questions about, you know, whether she had been a good enough parent, but it wasn't really about that. I mean, everyone wants to know where they come from and who they are. Um, That's what
0: I was thinking, you know, when you were talking about, the, you know, this identity um, issue and that it was so early um, on and, you know, I'm thinking like, to know who one is, is like one of the most existential questions, right? To know, you know, where do I belong and who am I? So I was actually in the telling of your story, i give you a little break so you can get a drink of water, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but I was thinking like, uh, as you were laying out the story about being that little dark skinned child, you know, five years old and just, um, you know, it's amazing to think how early these um, issues of identity come up, you know, to go to school and kindergarten and in already children are calling names because somebody's skin is a different color. It just, um, you know, it's, it's amazing to think that that happens so early on. <clears throat> um, I'm really appreciating your story. And you know what, I didn't even know that there was an Indian head in the animal crackers. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. I always
2: thought that was so strange. I know. And it, it was, I can't believe that happened. (laughs) I remember them and we used to
1: like cherish them. Like it was the cool thing to get one. And I never thought about, you said it now. (laughs) I never thought about the fact that they were with the other animal heads.
0: Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) So, um, so I'm sorry I interrupted you, but um, I just, you know, that was just right on my mind about how that is just such a burning question for so many people. Who am I? So um, so you had to get your stepdad to ask your mom, or your, step, your adopted mom, what agency adopted you? And I think that was kind of cool that you kind of got uh, inspired by Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> I happen to have an episode of Oprah Winfrey about this. It so. is. It's real cool. And you
1: know, and I also, it's not lost on me that you were adopted by your adopted father and then your your adopted mother remarried and he adopted you too. Yes. Like, a very interesting family. That's, I mean, it's just, <laughs> like, so it's in a way it's like beautiful to think that you had that much um, welcome in and, and, you know, twice to be adopted.
2: Mm. At the time, I didn't think it was a great thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so after I watched the show and I asked my dad and I got the name, it was the Good Samaritan Agency. So it was run um, by Catholic nuns. Um, and when I was 17 days old, that's when they took me home to the island. Um, and so i had to contact the agency and i met with one of the workers there who could give me non-identifying information um about who i was and what you know where i came where i possibly came from but in order to get the information about my biological mother i had to go back to my adopted mom again and ask her because it was on the adoption certificate um so it was sort of like a two-part thing with her um i know i got in the phone book i started calling everyone with the last name pottle because that was my birth mother's last name uh no one knew who she was um after she had me uh she sort of left the area so no one knew who she was um but there happened to be a softball game in jonesport and eastport was there and that's where she went to high school so i talked with some people in the crowd one of them worked at the school and she said i'm gonna go back and look through old yearbooks and ask around So within a day, I had my birth. I knew who my birth grandparents were. Oh, I got chills. (laughs) Hey, this is before Google. Like,
1: yeah, amazing.
2: So she didn't, she had an unlisted phone number. Well, actually, I called my grandparents. I said, you know, I'm Ellen Pottle's daughter. Um, And my grandmother denied it. And she just sort of hung up on me. Um, So I'm very persistent. I waited a few more days and I called her back again. And she, in the meantime, had thought about it. And she admitted that she was um, Ellen's mother. Um, So I went to visit her. Um, My mother did not have a uh, listed phone. It was unlisted. So I had to get her name and address and actually write her a letter, which took about a week. Um, And then I got a phone call from her after she got the letter. my parents, um, my mother was 15. She lived in Perry. Um, my dad was, I think he was 19 at the time. Um, and my grandfather hated the Pass people. Um, he had lived you know, next to the reservation his entire life. And the minute that he found out that she was pregnant with a Pass baby, he wanted nothing to do with it. So they sent her away immediately. The bangor and um, it was a big kind of hush hush thing obviously she didn't she didn't want to give me up but she was in that situation back in the 60s where you know women didn't really have much control yeah especially underage.
1: yeah especially a young woman um so i just wanted to say that you're listening to Land signals on weru fm i'm your co-host esther ann along with maria gerard Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And today we're talking to Wendy Newell-Dyer, Haslaquati woman, um, and she's sharing her adoption story. So you were right at the point, um, at a critical point. So go ahead, continue.
2: So my mother gave me the name of my birth father, um, and I'll back up a little bit, and I've shared this a number of times. You know, in an adoptee's mind, you're always thinking about who your parents might be. So my whole life, you know, I thought, oh, they're movie stars or oh, they're rock singers or they're famous. Um, and so when I found my dad, um, who is Wayne Newell, uh, he really is. A, he really was a rock star in this area. He, <laughs> he really was famous. Um, and it seemed like everywhere I went, people knew who he was. Um, I called him one day and I, I told him, you know, I might be his daughter and his immediate response was, no, that's not possible. So I just hung up. I got really mad and just I didn't I wasn't angry at him. I just hung up the phone. And again, I thought about it. Two or three days later, I wrote a letter to him and mailed it to him. And in the meantime, he had done the processing and realized, yes, yeah, she probably is my daughter. But I hadn't told him my name. I hadn't told him where I was from. So he said for those three days, he had absolutely, you know, he was frantic because he didn't know who I was. Um, So then when he got my letter, he immediately called me. Um, And the next day I took off for Indian Township to meet him. (laughs) Um, Wow. You know, in the very beginning, when you find your birth family, it's very euphoric. You know, there's like this honeymoon period, you finally found where you came from, who your parents were. Um, And that first year was just so exciting. and I didn't really go to anything where they played the drums until that following April. Um, I went to Cadillac Mountain on Earth Day, and there were members of the Four Tribes of Maine, and my, my father was a part of it. Um, and it was the first time I ever heard the drums. Um, and I can just remember it was sunrise, you know, everyone was drumming and singing, and the sun was coming up. And I, I just remember I sat there just sobbing. Um, Just, you know, realizing it felt like I had finally come home. It was like my whole life I was trying to find my way home. And there on that mountain, I realized, you know, this is my home. This is where I belong. And I can just remember, you know, crying and crying. And um, so then the second year, like I went through this process of realizing, understanding how much I lost, you know, for the first 25 years of my life, you know, how much was taken from me. I didn't know the language. I didn't know the songs. I didn't know how to dance. Um, you know, that was the first time I saw a prayer, praying in the four directions. Um, so there was kind of a period of time where I, I felt like I was home, but yet it was as if I was looking in through the window. You know, I was outside looking in. Um, so there was a big struggle for a number of years, um, coming to grips with that, and especially. Uh, knowing how much I missed out with my dad, um, how many opportunities I would have had um, with him, all the different various things that he accomplished in his life. And I almost, I almost went to a point of complete mental and emotional breakdown. Um, You know, I had three small sons, I uh, was trying to process all of this, and it was a little bit too much. Um, so for a while, for a few months, I was really not in a good place. Um, and then little by little, I, you know, I came out of it. Um, I started, whenever my father was doing something, if he was speaking somewhere or was involved um, in anything to do with the culture, I would follow him. You know, I would go with him and hang out with him and just listen to him. Um, and it really wasn't until, uh, if, I think it was over 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. It wasn't until I went on the native America or the Passamaquoddy tribal canoe trip, um, that I finally, you know, felt like I was part of the tribe. That was sort of like my initiation. Um, I'd grown up working at a youth camp, uh, just a short distance from where I lived on the Island and I taught canoe classes you know, so I knew how to canoe since the time I was, you know, 10. And then through high school, I taught canoe classes. So it was very natural for me to hop in a canoe. And I think Esther was there. That's that's
1: I think that's where we met Our really talking. Yeah, that was that was amazing
2: experience. Yeah, and I've done it several times since. And it really is, you know, it's a powerful experience. You, you know, you, you take a route that you know that your ancestors have been on and you think about you know, what life was like back then compared to now and, and all of the things that have taken place, you know, on that river and in the ocean on the way to Pleasant Point. Um, and then I started whenever people were, you know, whenever anyone was drumming, especially with the big drum, I would sort of like just stand up next to the drum. Um, I've always been a singer. And, you know, in high school, I was, uh, I sang alto, and I did a couple of solos even sang with uh, Noel Stoopy from Peter, Paul, and Mary. Um, I had been chosen as the lead part in a Christmas play that he wrote. So I got to go to his house and, and practice the solo that I sang. So I really wanted to learn the songs. Um, So I just sort of stood by the drum and just, you know, listen to people sing and and little by little, I started to pick up the songs um, and eventually got to the place where I felt like, you know, it's okay if I sing um, because I, you know, I, I knew those, I learned the songs, I was able to sing, and it felt like just a natural thing for me to do it. Um, As far as the language, um, I've picked up a little bit here and there, um, and I know there are language classes offered. It it hasn't really worked out for me to, to, to be able to do that, but... I just I found it kind of ironic along the way that, you know, my father worked so hard to preserve the language and to make sure that it was passed down. And, and here I am, his oldest child, and I don't understand the language and I can't speak the language. I know some of keywords key words that you need to know in McCarty what I won't say today. <laughs> um, and it, I've had to go through a mourning process. Um, you know, when I'm in a group of past McCarty people and, and someone st- starts talking past McCarty and everyone laughs, you know, I have no idea what they're saying. So I always have to ask someone. Um, and so that's, that's been, uh, I sort of had to mourn that loss. And, you know, hopefully I'll pick up some more. I'm, hopefully I'm not, I'm going to be on my human journey for a while longer. And, you know, hopefully I'll pick up some more things and you know make a more concerted effort but
1: I was thinking um about one of the first maybe the first time I met you and I was like you know everybody's saying who's that and it's almost like your name was Wendy Wayne's daughter <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh that's Wendy Wayne's daughter <laughs> it's like oh okay now I you know we can place her and know uh, like who you belong to I love that <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's the other thing. Everyone knew who I was, but I didn't know who everyone else was. Oh, that's that's Babanaki uh, for you. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. It's an amazing story. It really is, and you know that your first experience, um, you know, being on Cadillac Mountain, and like can, I can just um, imagine it all so much. Wendy Wayne's daughter
2: I'm going to remember that (laughs) we we would get a lot of um, interesting looks from people that didn't know about me and just thought that um, you know he had my three siblings and then he'll say have you met my daughter and you know they would kind of look at us like no I haven't (laughs) and so then we go into this little spiel about me finding him and that um, I had been adopted and and the actually, resemblance is clear. I
1: mean, yeah. <laughs> you could tell if you two are
2: next to each other, you could always tell that you were his daughter. Yeah. He wanted to be sure. So we had a paternity test. And back then it was a long process. It you know it took weeks to get the results back. Um, and it came back 98.9% conclusive that he was my father. And, and as we told people that story, people would look at him and say, why did you waste that money? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> just look at her she's your mini me. Uh, In fact, people in the family call me Wayne's mini me. (laughs) Um, So yeah. And and it's ironic that um, I eventually found my way back to Acadia and and the mountains of Acadia. And that's sort of where I found so much of my healing. Um, As Esther shared in the intro, my husband was diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer when he was 46 and I had just turned 32 and our kids were seven, eight, and 12. Um, And for 10 and a half years, he actively fought cancer in one form of treatment or another. Um, And after his death, uh, my youngest son, Adam, took me on a hike to Acadia up the Beehive, (laughs) which if anyone knows the Beehive, it's it's the second scariest uh, climb at Acadia, second to the precipice. And there are several spots where you have to climb up rungs on the side of the mountain. And I can remember getting halfway up the beehive and just sitting there being so frightened. And my son, Adam was ahead of me and he was just like, you can do it, mom. There's just a couple more rungs. And, you know, we'd come to another set of rungs and let me say, Oh, there's just a couple more rungs. And then I finally made it to the top of the beehive and I, I felt so empowered. I felt so accomplished. And that sort of, set things off for me Um, and from that point on I every summer with the exception of last summer I've I've made an attempt to go there once or twice a week and just climb a mountain Um, I feel you know it's my happy place I feel surrounded by my ancestors and I think it's really important you know I found in my life to just break away from the human world you know this chaotic world that we are living in um, with so much going on and just Totally break away from that and go out into nature and and especially up on a mountain, you know, and and just think and ponder and and process life. Um, and every time I go up, I always think about that first time that I went up on Cadillac and you know, heard my father sing
3: for the first time.
2: <clears throat> I can't even imagine,
0: you know, <clears throat> just just to share a little bit when you when you were saying that, you know, you were imagining. What your parents were like, you know, that you're imagining it. he was a rock star. And I grew up not knowing my father as well. And I used to do the same thing. I used to imagine, you know, some magical scenario of this person that they are. So I think that is very common that that
3: happens.
0: Yeah, I've heard it is. Yeah. I was wondering, um, at what point did you start writing? Were you like writing and journaling through this whole process?
2: Um. I didn't write much um, until I got my first desktop. Um, I have bad fine motor skills and writing things out with my hand was really difficult. But once I learned the keyboard and I could type really fast, that's sort of when I started writing, that was actually right around the time that my husband was diagnosed um, and I was doing oodles of research and I found some prostate cancer support groups online that we communicated through email and I just started writing about our experience, and and you know asking questions. Um, the more time that I was there, and new people came, I was able to to answer a lot of the new people's questions. Um, and it really was my it was my one avenue to just, you know, so that I could express everything that I was going through and process it. Um, you know, most people that have prostate cancer are a lot older than my husband. And, you know, there aren't that many prostate cancer wives who were in their early 30s. So, you know, we went to some groups in Maine and it was the youngest person there was 65. And I can remember coming out of that support group and just crying because I couldn't relate. Um, so we found some people our age online and, and that's really how I developed the ability to write. Um, but I... I also think, you know, it's part of my DNA, um, I come from a family of writers, you know, my dad, my brother, and my great-great-grandfather, I guess my great-great, uh, who delivered the speech to the main legislator in the 1800s, I believe it is. <laughs> um,
3: so,
1: Wendy, I, um, like I had said in the beginning, stories within stories, and I I uh, follow you on Facebook and I'm always inspired um, by what you share and especially your, your um, physical and emotional and mental wellness, like your spiritual wellness. I am really inspired by that story. And I know that's another story too. And I didn't know if you (laughs) wanted to
2: share that. (laughs) Um, I was really, really religious until my 39th year. Um, I was really involved. I grew up in the congregational church and eventually um, was in the community of Christ Church, and I was, I was religious, but I never really felt anything. I just sort of went through the religious, religion, religion movements. You know, I, I did, you know, baptism and and all the the different nuances in religion. But I always came away from church, you know, sort of feeling empty and unfulfilled. And it wasn't until um, in 2003, I graduated from U. Uh, main at Machias and about um, five minutes before we were to march into the auditorium for our graduation, the president of the university brushed by me, brushed my shoulder and smiled, the biggest smile, took two steps, collapsed and stopped breathing. Um, and it was really a, a traumatic event for me. Um, I immediately got down on my knees and just started to pray for him um, I didn't, I wanted him to know that he wasn't alone. Um, and unfortunately he, he died. Um, so I went to my graduate, you know, I marched in my graduation and I realized right from the start, I said, I learned more in that moment than I probably learned my entire five years at you, Maine at the And that was sort of a turning point for me. Um, I started eating healthy. I started walking at the time. I weighed 289 pounds. Um, I smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. I, I was drinking just to sort of cope with my husband's progressing cancer. But that experience just sort of, I'd always wanted to have a life changing experience. Not, I didn't have, want to have one where someone died, but I knew right from the start that that was my life changing experience. And for the next year, I went from literally being, only being able to walk five minutes at a time, at the end of that year, we were taking two, four mile hikes every day in the main woods and around the shore. Um, and I began to really think about spirituality. Um, I really, you know, had a lot of questions about my native spirituality. Um, I did a sweat lodge. Um, and, you know, the, I've done several and, and probably they'll go down as some of the highlights of my human experience. Um, one in particular was after my husband died and I was in the sweat and the entire time I was just crying, just sobbing, just brought out so emotion, so much emotion. Um, so it was kind of natural for me to to leave organized religion um, because it wasn't fulfilling me. But, and as I, you know, did things like the canoe trip and sweats and, you uh, singing and drumming. I got my own drum. I sing at home. Um, Those were the things that nurtured my inner being. Those are the things that brought me healing um, more so than anything, you know, in my 40 years of religion. Um, And I realized religion is a very important part of people's life. It was even an important part of my father's life. Um, But for me, when I began to really think about spirit and my spirit and um really focused on my mental and emotional well-being, that's that's when I really found the most healing. Um, and you know, for me, basically uh religion had probably just been like a social
3: event for me. And I didn't realize it until I wasn't involved in it anymore. Um, I just wanted to um interrupt briefly
0: to say that you are listening to Land Signals on WERU-FM. I am your co-host, Maria Gerard, along with co-host Esther Ann. Land Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And today we're talking with Wendy Newell Dyer, a Passamaquoddy author from Down East, um, who is sharing with us, um, well, stories within a story. Uh, we started with, um, adoption stories and we're, we're learning about uh, wellness and fulfilling our souls and so much. Wendy, you're such a um, gifted storyteller. And this is such an inspirational story. I can't believe how time is flying right by. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) so you you were saying you had that life changing moment and, uh, turned things around health wise and um, really started questioning um, religion versus spirituality and what it was that nurtured your soul.
3: Uh,
2: And you know, this whole time, my husband was, you know, fighting cancer and we started these walks and in the beginning, he was the one that was like, come on, we got to go. And he would push me through, I know another five minutes. And then as time progressed, we did these hikes for several years, two or three years. Um, and then his health began to deteriorate. So I was the one that, you know, let's go take a short walk. And, um, it just became my hikes and my walks just became part of my daily spiritual walk. And they still do. There have been times when I've drifted away for a few months. Um, but overall for the last 17 years, um, I've tried to maintain this, you know, hiking in the woods routine on a daily basis, um, I have a dog so you know I get up and he's full of energy so he's sort of my little he, he gets me going every day
1: and, and it's um, such a um wonderful gift that I see you bringing to your grandchildren yeah experiences and in, in teaching them that um I wanted to I know that you provided um you know your statement to the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission that process that they uh wrapped up in 2015 and I can't help in listening to your adoption story, think about the Indian Child Welfare Act and how if you had been born after 19, uh, 1978, your story might've looked different than uh, being born before ICWA when there was no requirement for the tribe to be aware of these adoptions. Um, and I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about you know, sharing your story and, and what that process was and, and has been like since.
2: It took me a long time to get up the courage to say that I would testify. Um, I sort of felt like I didn't fit in the parameters because I, you know, I wasn't, well, I was in foster care for the first year, but, I, you know, I didn't go to a boarding school. And so for a long time, I didn't testify. But then I felt a need to share my story because it is uh, a, a trauma to be removed from that, um, from our culture, from our language, you know, from that. It was very traumatic um and I wanted to just to share the pain that I went through to understand that it needs to stay in place and you know I've often thought if only I had been born after 1978 um like there was a period uh, It was almost like I went through my childhood again (laughs) I went through this rebellious teen period in my late 20s where you know, I was so, ang- it, it kind of evolved to the point where I was angry that I, you know, had been taken from that and all because of the sco- the color of my father's skin. And so, you know, I lashed out at my father uh, on a number of occasions and he was just, you know, this loving, unconditional loving person who knew that I had stuff I had to go through. Um, so no matter what I did or what I said, you know, his his reply was, you know, always that he loved me and that he understood how he, he tried to understand, you know, the process that I went through. Um, and I think also, I think about my own children, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't the one that was cut off from the culture, but you know, my children to some degree, um, were also, uh, even though they've, they've been to a lot of events and gatherings and, um, things on the reservation, they, they sort of feel a little bit like I did in the beginning, like they're sort of like outside the window peering in. Um,
3: and so they, you know, they've lost their language as well. Um, and when my father, um, as my father became more ill, um,
2: it was, you know, it, it took some time for me to sort of realize, you know, that, that he was becoming more ill and then COVID came. So there was a period where I just, I didn't want to go visit him because I did not want to be the person that brought COVID to him. Um, so I feel like we lost out like on a
3: whole year, um, that first year of the pandemic. Um, but I've, you know, I've, It's been a wonderful experience to find someone like him at the
2: end of of my search. Um, And I just think of him as my dad. And and then like, you know, he died in December and uh, people started contacting me and I started reading, you know, about the things that he did. You know, I knew he was accomplished but I didn't realize, you know, how much he really did. Um, And, you know, if I could have handpicked any father, you know, it would have been him. And it's been a difficult process, you know, the last few months to just sort of, you know, come to terms with that. I was just gonna
0: say, Oops. I was gonna say, (laughs) go
2: ahead, Maria. Go ahead.
0: I was just gonna say when you said, you know, he was so accomplished, but you didn't, you know, really realize to to what extent. But, um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of your dad, uh, Wayne Newell, is that how humble he was. So it's no surprise that you didn't, um, that you weren't aware of all his accomplishments
1: and he, you know, and those, when I think of his accomplishments, you know, everything he's done, but how many people he's impacted, mm-hmm. how many young people went to school, you know, because of Wayne, how many young people are learning the language again, um, because of Wayne, it, it's, you know, immeasurable and you, you know, you have some pretty cool siblings too.
2: Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, that's been really, you know, it was great to find out that I had two brothers and a sister. Um, And it's, you know, we've gone through a lot over the past few years, we've lost um, several family members. And that's just brought us really close together. And, you know, growing up, I didn't have the best kind of relationship with my adopted siblings. Um, So this has been sort of a new experience um, to you know, have a relationship with them. I was just thinking a year ago, everyone from my family was here at my house and we were having a big potluck party and we took a big picture of us. And it was the last time my dad was here at the house. And I remember at that time just thinking how blessed I was. You know, there was a period where I was so angry that I missed out on all of that. But then I've come to the point where I realized how truly blessed, you know, that I've been for these last 30, I think it's 31 years. Um, and even, you know, when my dad died, my, my, my tears in the beginning were tears of gratitude, you know, tears that I was able to find him and, and be with this incredible human being for the last 30 years of my life. Um, and I can't imagine what my life would be like
3: had I not found him, had I not found out that I was past body because it's so much a part of who I am, um, definitely an amazing story
0: isn't isn't life interesting that way (laughs) life is an interesting journey yeah
1: um now wendy I, i i was just wondering how you know you've shared a lot about your journey and finding your your dad and that side of family were you able to connect with your biological mom's family as well yeah
2: i found my mom she was living down in Virginia at the time um she's lived most of her life in the south and I've met her several times um when I've been traveling through I've stopped by Uh, I do have one biological sister on that side um it's been a little more difficult to have a relationship just because of the distance but you know we do keep keep in touch on Facebook um uh she she really struggled with my adoption, you know, she, her whole life, she wondered where I was. And, and then, you know, when I found her, she was relieved, but, you know, in my mind, my mom was the person who raised me. Um, and so it's, you know, kind of hard to reconcile that in my mind. I have these two mothers and I have, I had three fathers, <laughs> um, teaching my family tree to my grandchildren was very interesting. Um, <laughs> And it's taken multiple tellings because it's pretty confusing <laughs> with the adopted
3: sibling, half siblings and steps siblings and biological half siblings. Um, sometimes I think that we can't really have too much family
1: though, huh? Yeah. Whether they're biological or adopted or just by choice, you know, we, we have, it's good to have a lot of family. Most
2: definitely. And I've uh, I've also cr- like created a family through friends. Um, you know, there's there are special people in my life that they feel like family too. Um, I couldn't help but think in your
0: um, telling of your participation in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you know, the a trauma to, to be removed and I always, think about, um, you know, that saying that Denise Ultivator uh, always said that the trauma is in the taking and how true, how true that
2: is. One of the things I said in the, my TRC um, was, you know, being adopted is a lifelong experience. It's a lifelong journey. You know, even though I found my biological parents, you know, how, you know, my life is different than a lot of people's lives. Um, and it is a lifelong, it, you know, journey to, to come to grips with it and to, you know, there's still every once in a while, uh, I'll have a little twinge, you know, I wish I could have been raised there. If, I want to learn how to, I know how to dance. I dance in my own house, but I'm so afraid to dance in front of other people. And I'm trying to make that jump. Um, but it's just little things like that, that, you know, if I had been raised in the culture, I'd be right there with my sister, Dot.
1: Not necessarily, Wendy. I mean, we all, I say we all have that. We all experience that, you know, gee, I I love singing, but I don't sound good, you know. And it was Mugglet Paul that told me a long time ago, she said, it doesn't matter what you sound like, you know, the ancestors want to hear you
2: sing and they want to see you dance. I'll dance with you. (laughs) uh, My niece, uh, Chelsea Barnes was dying. Um, She was 24, I think, and had um, terminal cancer. And I stayed up with her at night for the last month of her life so that I could, you know, my sister could sleep. And one night we got talking about singing and dancing, you know, and just randomly she said, well, if you want to sing, just sing. (laughs) If you want to dance, just dance, go do it. Um, And so I really think this year I'm going to, I'm really going to do that because, you know, that was the best, her best pieces of advice that she gave me, you know, as she lay dying. Um, so I just need to go do it. <laughs> well, if I ever if I ever see you,
3: I'm gonna come grab you. So just <laughs> be warned. <laughs> I love that. Yeah.
0: I can't help think you keep talking about being on the outside looking in. That would be
2: a great title, wouldn't it? <laughs> Well, I've thought about, uh, yeah, I've wanted to write a book and it's probably already written, you know, for the last 20 years, I've wanted to write a book. And if I went back through my writings, I probably have the book already. Um, but I think the title of it would be, Have You Met My Daughter? Um, just because those were the last words that I heard my father say um, as he lay dying. Uh, he, you know, he just randomly said that. Um, and it was the line that we, you know, that he used whenever I went with him. I I even went to uh, Washington, D.C. when he was at the Library of Congress and the Kennedy Center performances, um, just because I wanted to take that experience in um, and remember it. Um, So if that, you know, when I get this book ready, that's my title. I've just got to work toward it. And, you know, he and my brother set the bar high because they both published books last year. And uh, so, you know, I need to get kind of Get motivated and do that. <clears throat> as and, and what else are you doing with your time? Are you,
1: um, I heard you might be
2: teaching. Yeah, I was teaching before the pandemic for a couple of years. And then um, last year, you know, with the uncertainty of the pandemic, I didn't want to teach. So I had luckily saved a lot of money and I took the last year off, went to Florida for the winter. Um, and now I'm going to be teaching uh, for the Wayfinders School. Um, and I'll be the passages teacher for Washington County, which is a program to help students um, get their high school diploma. Uh, since I homeschooled our kids, you know, it just seems like a perfect fit for me, and I get to travel all over Washington County and hopefully make a difference, um, and I've thought how interesting that is. You know, here I am, this past Passamaquoddy person that's gone through so much trauma, and I find my way back, and I'm going out in, you know into my territory, and, and to hopefully you know touch students lives and and help them fulfill you know most people want to graduate from high school so um you know I just think of how that's changed from you know two or three hundred years ago
1: (laughs) yeah and I you know and I can see you in this role kind of being that ambassador that your dad was to our culture and sharing that with people wherever you go yeah and I, I
2: I think it's a good thing, you know, when you've had a lot of trauma um, to find a way to bring meaning um, to what you've experienced. And I think, you know, I'm going to be working with some students that have had some difficult life situations. And I think everything that I've gone through until this point kind of prepares me to be able to go out and do that. And it does bring meaning um, to the suffering that I've gone through. so I'm really excited. I'll start that in in August. I'm so excited
3: to, to get going on that. Um. Congratulations! Oh, that's a that's a wonderful program. I had a
0: little bit of familiarity with it when I um, when I lived down um, that way and uh, near Zabaiak, being a mentor to a Pashtunwadi woman that uh, was in the program. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have just about um, just about three or four minutes left, and so I just wanted to give you an opportunity. If there's you know anything more that you really want to be sure to share with us, or um, maybe maybe telling people how we can find some of your writings or whatever you
2: want to share. Um, yeah, I'm really I'm, again I'm really thankful that you gave me this opportunity. Um, I would have never envisioned myself doing some of the things that I've done. Um, But, you know, like, like, you know, my father has, has put the bar high and, and, you know, I'll never, ever reach the level of achievement that he did. Um, But the things that I do, I try to bring him in to that, you know, just from everything that I learned from him. Um, I'm, you know, the single most important you know, other than the birth of my children and my wedding and my grandchildren, you know, the single most important thing in my life was finding out that I was a Passamaquoddy woman. And though the journey has been hard and difficult at times, um, coming to know myself as past Passamaquoddy woman is, you know, the most sacred thing uh, that I've experienced. Um, cause there were all those years that I didn't know. And, you know, I was always asked and and, you know, I didn't just find my family at the end of my search, you know, I found my tribe. Um, so, you know, I have this family, but then I have this huge extended family and thanks to Facebook there, you know, I, there are so many years, I didn't know who people were, but through Facebook, I've you know been able to put names with people and, and know so many more tribal members that I did before then. Um, but I'm, I'm really, uh, I feel really thankful that you allowed me this, this chance to share a little bit about who I am. Um, and, you know, that as we touched on the, I, uh, the ICWA, you know, realized that children who are taken from the culture really do um, lose a lot and a lot is taken from them. And is, it is a long and difficult journey um, to come back to that and to, and to find out and learn what you've missed. Um, and that's why I shared my story um, with the TRC so that hopefully other children won't have to go through what I went through.
3: Um, Thank you, uh, Wendy. I just
1: want people to know um, the statements, Wendy's statement and others are available on in the TRC archives at Bowdoin College um, on their website. And if you want to read Wendy's writings, you can find them on Dawnland Voices. Um, It's a now it's an online magazine that's published. Uh, It's called her story is called A Warrior's Homecoming and her other two on um, Homeschooling Through Difficult Times and Homeschooling Today magazine, and then Chicken Soup for the Soul. I don't know how to find those.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I just Google my name.
0: <laughs> this has been amazing. Um, such an inspirational and heartwarming story. And I think this just might be the first time in, how long have we been doing in Don Land Signals? A couple of years now? This mm-hmm. might be the first time I had to break out the tissues. <laughs> I know. Thank you, Wendy. You're yes, so absolutely. So with that, K'chee uh, Willy uh, Wendy Newell-Dyer, a very special guest for, for sharing all your stories within the story. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on Land Signals. As always, thanks to our volunteer technician, Jeffrey Hodgkiss, for his assistance and support behind the scenes. Be sure to join us next month and every Thursday—oh, um, excuse me—in every third Thursday of the month for Dawnland Signals and more conversations of truth, healing, and change. Uh, stay tuned for more great programming here on
3: WERU FM. Up okay. Upjig.